You're listening to Boss Tone Radio, Talk for Guitar, presented by BossUS.com. Hi, Paul Hansen here. I'm the host of Boss Tone Radio, and today's guest doesn't really need a lot of introduction. His name is Steve Morris. Steve's very well known for his band, the Dixie Dregs, and of course the Steve Morris Band. But Steve's also the guitarist for the band Deep Purple these days. I caught up with Steve in between trips to Europe. Here's the interview. Gosh, Steve, so you're in Florida. Do you live there now? Yeah. Yeah, that's my home. You went to the University of Miami. Are you near Miami? No, I'm up in the northern part of the state. More like Georgia. I spent most of my life living in Georgia. Uh My family moved there when I was a kid. Hence the Dixie part of Dixie Dregs. Yeah, that was actually a joke. We just thought it was funny. You know, kids, we were teenagers at the time, and a teenager, a funny name, is much more worthy than one that people might be able to remember. (laughs) (laughs) I want to tell you, um, in 1980, pretty sure it was 1980, either that or 81, I was going to GIT when it was in the old building, and you came and gave a seminar that was absolutely great. And I still remember, you know, parts of it to this day. Do you remember doing a seminar at GIT? Oh, yeah. I remember that. I used to do uh, several. Right. That was me doing really lots of guitar clinics. I enjoy doing that because I may not be the best giving somebody instructions on how to remember the modes and things like that, but I've been around a long time. It's like that thing that, Grandparents used to tell me, <laughs> listen to your elders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've seen a lot in the music business, and, it, and you notice certain things, you know, cause and effect. I try to encourage young players with, you know, what I think is important, as opposed to often what they think is important. Well, I remember a long time ago when you did that seminar, I was grappling with, I'm a guitar player too, and I was grappling with... Um, improvising solos or working them out. I watched you just rip off like these really cool licks and you just were doing it off the top of your head. And I don't know, it helped crystallize for me. You told me that improvising isn't spontaneously creating, it's kind of reorganizing. Do you recall that? No, it's it's something like I feel is that generally when people have played something off the top of their head, yeah, what they're doing is rearranging things that they know. Right. The same way we make sentences. We don't make sentences with words we don't know. Exactly. So each word could be a you know a, a phrase or a finger pattern, or it could be a you know a hint, an idea. Your sentence could be the idea of a melody, and how you put it together it depends on what you've done in that area at that tempo it, with that kind of hand position. Right, and that key and the... yeah. So anyway, it was a great clinic. Um, you've had an amazing career. It's uh, spanned a lot of years. I read you, you've been on 47 different albums. Can we go back in time when you were at Miami mm-hmm. at, at the college, you met the longtime Dixie Dregs drummer, Mo- Rod Morgenstein, and he was playing piano. Yeah, there was a class called improv. I was actually in school to play classical guitar, but since I was a beginner, they didn't really want me. And so I got stuck in the jazz department, who didn't want me, but <laughs> were a little bit more tolerant. Uh-huh. Although they didn't want me playing in the jazz ensembles, they did, you know, put me in all, all the classes. So 
in my improv class, Rod Morgenstein, we'd have a, an assignment, like, play over these changes, mm-hmm. and everybody would, in front of the class, have to play. And I, I thought Rod was really melodic and just different. There was something special about him. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this would be a great guy to, to do some writing with. And then it turned out we really needed a drummer, and I found out Hiram Bullock told me Rod was a great drummer. I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> He's a keyboard player in my improv class. He said, yeah, but you should hear him play drums. Wow. Play drums like a musician, you know? So, so I, that's how it ended up. Hiram Bullock was going to school with you back then? Yes. Wow. He was the second guitar player in the Dregs for a while, and then he was the bass player in the Dregs for a while until Andy moved down there. Andy West. Hard to keep Hiram, though. It was hard to keep him because he, he was a hustler and he had lots of gigs. He was a moving target. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever we could work with him, we did. Hey, this is kind of a weird thing. I heard that you got kicked out of high school because you refused to cut your hair. Is that true? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I could have got kicked out every two weeks from the time I was in junior high. Public school, too. In fact, the last time I got kicked out, this is going to really sound weird, but... Mm-hmm. All right, Augusta, Georgia. Right. It's a big military town, and I was friends with a lot of the GIs because they were stationed at Fort Gordon. Not, Fort Gordon. Not too far. We did an easy driving distance to Augusta. And so they would come on the weekends, and they were our best audience, you know, for the kind of original and, and covered material of heavy music and original stuff that we were doing. And so mm-hmm. we'd play downtown, and the, the GIs from all over the country came. They were great. And one mm-hmm. of them was in the National Guard. I was telling them about, oh, man, I just, I just had to get a haircut. Every two weeks, they come and kick me out until I get a haircut. <laughs> just do what we do. When we go in for our weekend every month, we just tuck our hair under a short hair wig. Uh-huh. I said, oh, that's awesome. Does that really work? I said, yeah, you can't tell. So here I am in high school, and the principal comes up on the last day of school, right before the summer vacation, says, uh-huh. Morris, you have to get your hair cut, to my satisfaction, military style, before you get your report card. In other words, you're not going to be able to finish this grade uh-huh. unless you do this. I checked in the legality of it. They were like, well, if you're violating the dress code, which I wasn't, I didn't think. But anyway, I couldn't afford a lawyer. So <laughs> I got my hair and said, that's it. That's the last time. Next time I went to school, I had a short hair wig <laughs> and, and much longer hair because I, I let it grow over the summer. And, and things went fine. The year was going really well. I was doing excellent in school. Uh-huh. I had a lot of friends and other people were doing it. Then somebody told somebody in the administration, they made a special rule that says, boys cannot have wigs. Oh, man. <laughs> so, so they didn't even know what color my hair was or how long it was. They just knew it was there. And they made a special rule. <laughs> and uh, that's what I said. That's it. I'm done. Wow. And then I tried to go to tech school, learn to be a, a mechanic or something. And they wouldn't let me in because the superintendent of schools had made sure that every public school in the entire county would not let me in. And so, yeah, there was there was a Catholic school that would take me if I wore a tie and a shirt and belt and everything. I get my hair back. Is that how you finished high school then at the Catholic school? Yeah. And oh I, my gosh. My parents said, "Well, you've made this problem, so you're going to have to pay for it yourself." All my amplifier money that I was saving for a new amp went uh, to that. Oh no. Then after that, I, I just you know I never actually got my diploma, but I you know was sort of bred to be an academic person and. I got into college. From I did summer school stuff. Wow, what a story! To get my credits done. After you graduated from college, is that that's when you started 
the Dixie Dregs? Well, we actually did it in school. Uh, I, I did one year in Miami and then another year back in Augusta. Mm-hmm. During that second year in Augusta is when we did the, the Dixie Grit. Dixie Grit was just another funny name because none of us were actually born Southerners. Oh, Dixie Grits. Yeah. Grits, yep. <laughs> yeah. And, yep. yeah, Grit is a singular of the, the, of the grits. Grit. You know, just that cooked wheat cereal, but it's, yeah. it's corn-based. Anyway, mm-hmm. just another joke, an inside <laughs> joke that became a band title mm-hmm. forever to our detriment. <laughs> and, you know, we had a hard time. Augusta was just not a great place to, to be for a band that did originals. And band broke up, and so Andy and I were left saying, well, we should do something. Let's do something instrumental. And we're the, we're the only ones left from the band, so we're the dregs. Let's, we'll call it the Dixie Dregs. I get we it. We laughed, and that was the title. So it was just Andy and I, and then we had several different drummers from Augusta. Then my third year of college, I went back to Miami, and that's when I you know, started working with Rod and Hiram Bullet, Alan Sloan. Oh, my gosh. Frank Josephs. And then I called the band and said, hey, this Andy is West. really going well. I got amazing musicians everywhere. You've got to come down. And he did, and we we started playing around the area for free. Mm-hmm. The reaction was so good, and the musicians were so good that I felt like he really needed to be part of that. So he, he took some courses there. So we spent a couple years in the University of Miami as the rock ensemble number two, but it was really the Dixie Drake band. You know, the same material that I was just bringing in charts every week. But we had a college course credit, you know, since we were uh, ensemble, and I was the, quote, instructor. I brought in the charts, and, and I was responsible for getting the set together, you know, to play for the faculty and student body for the recital. So, Steve, when you you bring the charts in, would you write a drum chart and then uh, like a chord chart for the bass player to follow, or would you actually write uh, notes? Wrote notes for violin. Oh yeah, chart chord charts and melody notes for keyboard, mm-hmm. and just made a copy of those for bass and drums because rod he could understand the whole thing from top to the bottom Mm -hmm. he would just figure out something to play and would learn real fast and same with andy i didn't write too much in bass class yeah (laughs) i was i always write out violin lines and if the chords were were weird for the keyboard right that we'd get those voicings just right chord voicings so steve when you were starting to get popular were you guys rejected by a lot of labels before you signed with capricorn oh yeah every every label including capricorn (laughs) i love to tell people that because every band i've ever heard of except for you know the most outrageous you know like if you have a a girl band with five models or or a boy (laughs) band the exact opposite you know or have the most, you know, guys dressed up like reptiles or, or <laughs> things like that. People being fine, maybe. But for the most part, if you're doing something that the audience likes, the record company really has to, to be told to like it. Somebody in the industry has to tell them, hey, you know, those guys are good. Oh, really? And uh-huh. then they'll listen. But right. if you just send them a demo, they'll just return it. Right. In fact, I, I had a wall, a rejection wall. I remember living in the, this old trailer that I bought, which was a really cool thing, I thought, to own your own place. But on the wall, I, uh-huh. I had the rejection letters as the wallpaper. Wallpaper. <laughs> and in most cases, they had sent back the albums. I had them shrink-wrapped when, I, when we sent them out. Uh-huh. And they were sent back, still shrink-wrapped, unopened. And then they would describe how the music didn't really fit. <laughs> <laughs> But then somehow you got involved with Allman Brothers' manager, and did he get you the deal with Capricorn? The Allman Brothers had just broken up 
uh, recently, and Chuck LaBelle, the keyboard player, who's now with Rolling Stones for many decades. Chuck LaBelle, yeah. Was doing a solo tour. His name's Chuck LaBelle, so his initial is C, and he called the band C-Level as a play on his name. So C-Level was doing some gigs. I think they were playing Nashville or stopped in Nashville and happened to be at the Exit Inn, you know, sort of well-known club when we were playing. Uh Twigs and Chuck were were there and they were laughing. You know, they just thought the band was funny, you know, and we did have a sense of humor. They, They liked it. It was instrumental music and obviously, you know, had a limit to what could be done with it in the mainstream, but they told Phil Walden. Phil Walden from Capricorn. And suddenly... Somebody listened to the demo, and we got a deal. Actually, before then, we had Al Cooper and MCA. They were interested, but I think the deal that MCA proposed was so, so bad that even starving musicians like us were like, are you kidding me? Uh, Yeah, like (laughs) eight points or something like that. I think it was four. Oh, my gosh. After all the exclusions, Beatles catalog would have probably brought in 20 cents. <laughs> yeah, after they recouped. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and there was no way to recoup unless you had a platinum album. You guys did several really successful albums. I mean, and you were recognized by the guitar magazines. And, and then I guess Capricorn went bankrupt. And then you got a deal with Arista and you did the Dregs of the Earth album. Then you became the band's producer. Is that correct? I think Ken Scott. Uh huh. Ken Scott. Being our producer for two albums in a row right before that uh-huh. was a big deal because, you know, I thought and still think Ken Scott was like greatest, good natured, meticulous, great ears, mm-hmm. musical in all decisions, and just had the stamina in the studio. Right. He could put in the hours that it took to get a great sound. And I just basically imitated him. And of course, uh, you know, it was never going to be as good as a Ken Scott album, but. You know, our albums took forever, and this this way I could just keep track of every note. When I was in my worst Attila the Hun kind of <laughs> period of total dominant control, <laughs> not to belittle people, but simply just because I was so stressed out about getting everything right. I think you guys did a couple albums with Arista, and then you did Industry Standard, where I think I saw you on American Bandstand back then. It looks like you're having a good time. Was was the vo- whole vocal thing, was that pressure from the re- record label? Or did you guys decide that you wanted to add vocals? Um, well, <laughs> it was actually our management at the time. Uh-huh. It was a group of lawyers, actually, and they we had been feeling like they hadn't been doing much for us, and it was quite a big payment we had to make to them. They said, well, if you want on the contract, just do this. Put a vocalist on your next record. In fact, do at least two vocals. And if it doesn't sell any better than the other ones, then we'll let you out of the contract. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's what we did immediately. Uh-huh. <laughs> they lived up to the word. They let us out of the contract. And, of course, it didn't make any difference because you, you can't suddenly change your stripes. Right. You have this huge following. But we never had a huge following. We, we were just one of the, you know, cold bands. But we did have a following. And you did? Yeah, we didn't want to write anything that was too straight ahead mm-hmm. but we did write some vocals and and did get out of the contract oh. and i had fun doing it and got to work with some great people in the oh. process oh gosh i want to ask you about kansas how did that come about that you got into the band kansas i was at a concert in atlanta that was our home base and i saw phil Hart. kansas's drummer we had been friends with everybody and i was a big fan of kansas 
band was broken up at the time I saw Phil, but he said, I was talking to Walsh, he was thinking about coming back and doing the album. I said, that's great. Mm-hmm. Can't wait. If you want to do any collaboration, writing or anything, let me know. And so a few days later, he did call me up. I got together with everybody, and we actually had Steve Walsh sing background on our on our industry standard album, and we got along fine with him. But he didn't want to, his name on there because of the, his record company or something like that. I remember all all I wanted was he on that song. Yeah, that was actually a tune that he had been trying to to do with Kansas to write, and it just wasn't quite finished. You know, the band just wasn't happy with what was coming out, and so that was one of the things we worked on. And and I immediately said, well, what about this? And so just a little instrumental part and instrumental turnaround for the verses, and uh, and it was a hit. That's all it took was a little little push. It was. Uh, majority of that was his tune. Yeah, they got it played on MTV. I taught at GIT for maybe 15 years or so, and I remember it was like 1987 or 88, in the late 80s, one of my students came in and said, did you know Steve Morris quit guitar and became an airline pilot? <laughs> I was incredulous. I thought, there's no way. But then, so can you tell us about, about that? You actually became an airline pilot? Yeah, well... You know, as as a kid, I was just like any other kid. I, went, I wanted to, you know, be a fireman, a uh-huh. cowboy, race car driver, a pilot, yeah. <laughs> and uh, astronaut. Just normal. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but I never, I never actually became one. Don't you have to have a lot of flying hours to to do that? Yeah, you, you do. Yeah. Well, first of all, I didn't quit guitar playing. I was hoping to quit the music business. Uh-huh. Because remember, this was the time that MTV was ruling everything, and it felt to me like all the opportunities for innovation and their originality were kind of being cut out, and there was this yeah. uh, stereotype being put forth. Yeah, and the the term corporate rock was yes coined. Yeah, and it hit me really hard. It sort of seemed like the end of days to me. Uh-huh. For whatever reason, in my world, it just seemed that way. So I just said, well, I'm just going to keep on doing music whenever I want to and do whatever I want to and figure out a way to pay the bills. You know, maybe I can even have a family and, and kids someday, you know, because <laughs> at the time, you know, the ups and downs of being a musician, I just never felt like it would be the responsible thing to do to have a family until I could be sure that I could make a living all the time. Right. And so, plus you're on the road so, so much. Yeah. And yeah. in the course of us traveling with my trio and, and with Dregs, luckily they were into flying on private planes. So I, I got a lot of hours flying with the band, and it's great experience because when you're when you have to be somewhere, you know you don't just say ah the weather looks kind of bad. I I'd rather not. You just try and figure out a way to to, to do it. Yeah. So in in '93, I saw the Dixie Dregs play a really cool classic rock medley on the Leno show. Had you gotten the Dregs back together after you you were a pilot? Yeah, we've done lots of things. We've always had little reunions with the Dregs and, you know, done a little project like a an album and a little uh-huh. tour. No, nothing major. Well, and then 1994, you joined Deep Purple, one of my favorite bands. Man, that band's gone through so many metamorphoses. I watched on YouTube, there's the Wacken Festival in Germany. Mm-hmm. The latest lineup you guys have is really rocking. It looks to me like you're more of an equal member rather than a sideman. Is that the way it is? Yeah, you know, when it comes to deciding when we're going to tour, 
I would say I'm not as equal as the most senior members. <laughs> like I- Ian, Roger, there's two Ians. Yeah, they made me an equal member from day one. I was really surprised by that. Wow. I watched an interview of Ian Gillen, and he said he said that you guys like to improvise a lot, and I thought that's really cool. So when you guys do a set, you really are improvising and doing new things? Every night? It depends. Like at WAC, and there's not much room uh-huh. for anything other than soloing, which is improv. Yeah. But we have, we have sections where we do. Like here, as the guys would say, you take it and kick it around. When you've had enough, give the horses eyes. What they mean <laughs> is you improvise and you you know lift your head up and get everyone's attention. And that makes your eyes widen like a horse that's frightened. That's what they mean by the horse's eyes. <laughs> so you get everybody's attention and then... Cue the next part. One thing I noticed that was really cool, Steve, is on the song Hush, you must have worked on it. You got that really insane Richie Blackmore vibrato down. (laughs) Yeah, I used to do that anyway. For Almost, we did it as a comedy thing. Andy and I would both just like a one note. When we play, we used to play Dixie and major and then minor, three-part harmony, and then put just some funny notes in it. Just like I said, sense of humor was everything for us. (laughs) <laughs> but it turned out, basically what I do is lock my wrist and just kind of stiff arm, and you can get a, a really wicked vibrato that's almost out of control. Yeah, well... It works great. It simulates having a, a vibrato arm. Yeah. You know, working it real hard. Yeah, you nailed it. Let's talk about gear. You've been a Music Man endorser, I don't know, 20 years or so? And do you have two models now? Steve Morris models? Yes. Can you tell the, us about the those? The original one was a four-pickup based on my sort of Frankenstein that started as a Fender Stratocaster and then ended up with only the Stratocaster neck attached to a Telecaster body, then humbucking pickups put on that, and then changing the tailpiece to a, to a tunematic bridge, and then a custom pickguard, different pots, capacitors. I, I remember from your clinic at GIT, you, you had that guitar, and you constantly were switching pickups to get different sounds. I'd never seen anyone do that before. You would maybe do some chicken picking kind of thing and you'd use the single coil pickup. Mm-hmm. One thing a lot of people do is when they play high notes, maybe they switch to the neck pickup and when they play low notes, they're on the bridge pickup. Do you do that kind of stuff? All the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm still, I change pickups a lot. I think the range has a lot to do with it. And the combination of single coil and humbucking together on the not very distorted stuff makes just a great sound oh. for rhythm and for funky stuff. So, yeah, I use a lot. I mean, I'm always changing pickups. That's, that's one of the... That's one of the things of your style cool. that you do. Guys that play organ, they do the same thing. They, they change sounds. All the draw bars. Mm-hmm. Do you... It always seems to me, do you use 10 through 46 gauge or heavier? Normally, I said it's been 10 to 42 now we have a drop D tuning it. It's a higher six string, so, two or something like that. Ah, uh, something fat. But we tuned the standard pitch, and lately I've actually been trying nines just so, for left hand. Yeah, you can vibrato more and bend easier and easier on your fingers. I think so. This summer you're doing a bunch of touring with Deep Purple, right? Mm-hmm. And I was looking at your your rig, and it looks like okay, you're using angle amps. And um, do you have a couple amps set up that where they're running all the effects and then a couple amps totally dry? Yeah. The dry amp is just basically 
nothing going into it but well there's a tuner and compressor foot pedal compressor and both those have to be total bypass so they both make a clunk if you hit them but uh-huh. try to do that strategically that's your boss tu12 tuner you still use that one i use those for a lot of years so they're they're a good tuners so you you use the tu12 through the dixie drag years and the yeah uh, that's all i used up until yeah just a few years ago and i noticed looking at one of your videos that you use an octave pedal a lot with deep purple for solos can you talk about that yeah that was it started when we were doing hard loving man and richie's solo he had harmonized it almost sounded like it was the same solo up by a third that it was parallel uh-huh and so we tried with a bit shifter uh-huh. during the solo and everybody liked the sound of it and because with the two amps the harmony only comes out of the second amp it doesn't modulate the first amp. so it really does sound more like two guitars right then you know for a couple of solos just to give a a different color using the, the octave is it the boss oc3 the brown one that's one of them i have four different rigs actually five different rigs but that's definitely one of them uh-huh do you have any other boss pedals yeah i have a, a tap delay or a not tap delay a where it has a huge memory oh is it a looper pedal yeah yeah so rc3 maybe a red one yeah it's, it's, it's pretty big it does it do like lots of different loops yeah Chorus Ensemble. The best. The boss. Big, heavy, cast iron thing. Yeah, I think that's the one that Andy Summers used in the early Police albums. It's called the CE1. Yeah, in fact, I bought that in Hollywood at our first recording session. It was it was awesome. I, oh, I thought of one other thing that I, I use a lot. Oh, yeah. I carry with the as the CE2, the little chorus. Oh, yeah. Also, because it, it allows you to split the modulated signal and the straight signal or maybe the ce3 if you put a dummy plug in the stereo output on one side you can get the totally modulated only signal on the other oh i didn't even know that so that's one of the things when i use it i have to put a a cheater plug in and then it becomes all effect yes and then that's what makes the two amps sound big and massive is that one they're never doing the exact same thing thanks for the tip that's something that's right have you ever used guitar synthesizers? Very much. I had one of the Roland guitar synths put into my uh, prototype Music Man guitar and oh. used that for the whole tour that we did with Rush. It was a Power Windows tour, and we were opening for them. Was that, that was my, my trio. Oh, your trio? Yes. Do, do you recall which guitar synthesizer you used? Yeah, it was like a, a pretty big size. It had a big old huge connector. They call it the 13-pin connector, and you have that special pickup. So when you were on tour with Rush, what did you use the synth for? Oh, we did, again, some funny stuff. Like, they'd give me some loving, and I'd, I played the organ part on it. You played the organ part? <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> give me some loving. Yeah, um, and doubled some solos with it. I saw on your 2007 rig, I just saw some pictures. It might have been at your website. You had a big American flag across your amps i think it was with deep purple you're the only american guy in the band right (laughs) yeah (laughs) so you're staking out your little slice of a of us on stage (laughs) (laughs) 
That was pretty cool. Well, someone might have. People do things like throw flags up on stage. Uh-huh. I don't like to see anybody's flag to be on the floor. Right. So if it's Meredith's flag, I'll put it up. And uh, it's strange, the stuff that... It <laughs> gets thrown on stage. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've got some gigs in Europe coming up with Deep Purple, and then it looks like you're touring the States. Looking forward to the summer, playing with Deep Purple? Oh, very much. Yeah, we just got, got back bass player, founding member of Iron Maiden at a studio in Portugal. Steve. Steve Harris. Steve Harris, yeah. He's a, he's a he, bass shredder. Yeah, and he's a friend with Gillen. Ah, uh, Ian Gillen. His vacation home there or something. Anyway, we ended up, Gillen sculpted out and got his new studio that they're just remodeling for us to have a writing session in. We just got back from that. Oh, oh the, I just remembered. It was a Roland 700. Oh, GR 700. Yeah, that's the one that I think Andy Summers... Yeah, also. yeah GR700 guitar synth. So in Portugal, is it like just beautiful? And is Steve Harris's place yeah. near the water? Yeah, it wasn't on the water. It just, uh-huh. But it's, yeah, it looks like California. Wow. The weather's like that. You have a, a few weeks off, and then you head back to Europe? Yeah, I never end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And Steve, you've had one of the most amazing careers, and I think you've been voted, you know, guitarist of the year like 25 times in Guitar Player Magazine. But I, I bet for you, even though maybe it's not as much of a challenge, I just think that playing with Deep Purple would be really fun. It is. It is. That's It's a perfect gig for a guitarist like me that did a lot of time as a cover band guitarist. Yeah. You know, I, I got to play Rich's parts, too, as well as the new stuff. Yeah. And I, I love, you know, getting the right rhythm part to make the band percolate. And like Steve Lukather famously said in one of our guitar uh, seminars that we were doing, he said, he has a funny way of talking to you. It's always funny. I know. <laughs> I interviewed him on this show, too. Yeah. It's so he's saying, dude, I played on 400 records. And you know what? Not once has anybody hired me to solo. <laughs> I do some solos, but they want the rhythm playing. They want it to feel good and that's what you got to think about if you want to get a gig as guitar player yeah it's making it feel good making people want to dance and move yeah and with purple it's great you know what i do matters steve thank you so much for talking to me this has been really fun Uh, me too thanks for your patience finding a time we could do this oh no problem any last words about roland and boss gear everything that i've ever had has worked and continues to work unless it was completely abused (laughs) (laughs) on the road and that's what it's all about that's the description i would say is the best about rowan stuff just works does what it's supposed to and it keeps working yeah yeah well thanks for talking to us steve well thank you so much hope to see you again yeah me too okay man bye-bye Hey, just want to say thank you for listening to Boston Radio and using Cool Boss Gear. If you ever want to find out anything about Boss pedals, recorders, multi-effects, loopers, drum machines, rhythm machines, you name it, you can go to BossUS.com. Paul Hansen saying, see ya. See ya.